Good morning or afternoon, everyone. My name is Mike Boyd, founder of iRecon, and today I'll be your host. Uh, hopefully, I do a halfway decent job, and Brian does a pretty good job, and we'll be able to do this again. So joining me today is Brian Kramer, General Manager of Toyota of Naples. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Used cars is a huge passion of mine. Oh, absolutely. Same as mine. Same as mine. So do me a favor. I'd like the audience to get an idea of uh, a little bit of what you do and kind of your mindset towards the business. I mean, I know you, and of course, I've seen you at Digital Deal, and I've heard you speak, and we've met, you know, over the years. But kind of give us a little idea of who Brian is. Well, I'm a different person now than I was, uh, you know, years ago, and anymore. I'm I'm more about getting my managers to win and what and really enjoying uh kind of like with my kids enjoying watching them get a bunch of wins and, and they do a lot of winning i'm blessed to be around a, a, an absolutely amazing team uh our store sells about six thousand to sixty five hundred cars a month currently which pre-covid we were we had sites to go you know way past that but uh, i think next year maybe we we can but we're making some changes in used cars ironically that I, I think that we might be able to be at least static with that or more new cars. Obviously, the supply is down, so we're hoping to make it up with used cars. And I'm sure over the course of this conversation, we'll talk about the plan and, on how to get there. Wait a minute. Would, so you're telling me that uh, used cars are hard to stock and you're having trouble getting inventory and you're low in new cars? I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. <laughs> so new cars, obviously low. Used cars, depending on who you ask, is, is low. I think we... Uh, we figured out a few hacks, if you will, to uh, to source used cars, and I I really think that moving forward, whoever wins is whoever can source the most quality, uh, high demand, low market day supply used cars. Whoever has the best strategy to accomplish that is going to win. You know, and I, I've been a GM since I was 24 years old, years ago, at a little Mercedes Benz store that uh, used to be a Studebaker store in Columbus, Ohio, that was selling about 12 cars a month, and. Obviously, we got it up to selling a lot more than that. But the only way that we could really make a profit on on that was to grow the used car business because we were only going to get X amount of, of new cars. And there was only so many parking spaces. So we had to get very, very disciplined. We moved to a new location. There was 34 spaces, and we needed to sell 75 to 100 used cars. And I didn't see it at the time. Um, the Germains actually took me to Texas to show me somebody else who was doing it once they saw the play, implemented it. And... Uh, I've been passionate about used cars ever since. You know, you brought up something uh, really good there, and that is that right at the very beginning. Now, it's all good. Don't get me wrong, because if I didn't value your opinion, I definitely wouldn't have you on here. Um, but the car is the star, right? You said the key is whoever has the inventory. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes because there's a lot of things that we have to do at the dealership. And there's a lot of things that we try to do right. And if we do enough of them right, then we can actually be profitable. But... At the core, we sell cars, right? Everything we do is about selling cars. And right now, obviously, the market's in flux, which our market always is in flux. But it's all about who's got the car. At the end of the day, you can't sell what you don't have. So with that, let's start off right there. Tell me a little bit about your appraisal process at your dealership. And tell me, do you think that's more modern versus normal other dealerships? or? I think... Um well, let, let's start with when I was in Columbus, Ohio, I, I, was, I left that Oldsmobile store where I was lot porter. I sold cars for a little bit. It didn't work out well because I didn't, I wasn't a good student at that time. So I went to an infinity store and my 
sales manager at the time when I was one of the top salespeople, he would leave every day about four or five o'clock to go get some drinks at the restaurant right across the parking lot. And uh, he'd tell me, he'd throw me the keys and, hey, kid, you're in charge. I'll be back uh, to lock up. Maybe. If you have any questions, <laughs> maybe. If, if you have any call, here's the number of the payphone over here. If you have any questions about any uh, cars, just call me. I'll put the number on them. I said, do I need a book or anything? Not a problem. Just call me. Worst case scenario, just drive it over there to the back of that uh, Applebee's over there. <clears throat> okay. So, you know, so I would do it, take him over there. He was over there with three or four guys. They all had black books or gray books or whatever book they had. And I would go over there and ask them and they would sit there and confer about it. You know, it seemed very transparent. And they would say, well, why don't you try this and see what they say? And then if they have it, to call back at this number. The famous try them on. Try <laughs> this number. Okay. And if that doesn't work, you need more calls and let us know. Well, how much more is there? Uh-uh, kid. No, no, no. We're not don't doing that. that. So then I would put the deal together and I'm like, man, that, you know, they, the customer, that sounds like it's not a lot. I'm like, it actually, you know, the, if it wasn't for this and you start breaking down the recon and, you know, then we could give you that, but it, they go, but it's only like a year old. I, I understand, but that's just the market. I don't control it. It goes up and down all around like a merry-go-round. And then you go and you take the trade better. And then if there's four people over there, Hey, did you get that trade? And they're fist fighting out in the parking lot, these wholesalers over it. And there's an envelope or two, you get exchanged and all of a sudden the car is gone. I'm like, Hey, I had a customer on that. No, no, you don't want that thing. That's straight to wholesale. Right. And then, and then it transitions into the Mannheim where everything has to go through the lane to at least control the that, you know? I think it's important. Let's go back for a second. So when you were talking about the try them on, right? And everybody flips open the black books, because I do remember that, right? And there was only a few people at the dealership that were allowed to appraise cars, probably because you're right, it wasn't very uh, transparent. So <laughs> like the more people who are allowed to appraise cars, eh, you might have to split up some of the money. Now, I'm not saying everybody did that, but Let's, let's face it, it. It's not transparent. It did happen, right? And if it's not transparent, you don't know. And you're definitely not being trained or being groomed to move up yourself, right? So that is, of course, a time prior to the internet. I mean, we're dating ourselves here a little bit, yes, but let's be real. The consumer at that time had access to less information than we did. And if they so wanted to see the, the invoice, they tell them to buy a dealership and they could get as many as they wanted. Right, right. So it was that lack of information that put us in power that we could we could say some of those things and do some of those things, which obviously is a little bit different now. Okay, so now you were talking about moving to the auction. So then we had to run everything through the lane. So now all of a sudden we had a way to measure our our mistakes, right? If we miss tires, we miss this. Now all of a sudden they're doing the origin, the beginning of the CR. And they would sit there and point out, hey, you missed this, or this person changed the badge on this car, on this DHS, it's actually, or a DTS, it's actually a DHS, which I did that. Or somebody would say that it was a six-cylinder, it was really a four-cylinder, and they changed the badge on a BMW 3 Series, or all these other things that I learned to look for over the years on different things so they wouldn't keep reoccurring. But there, when the wholesalers were there, there was no check and balance. They were the ones that trained us to appraise cars, right, Is the back in the 90s. Wholesaler. Not that they had an ulterior motive in how they trained you, right? Correct. So, uh, yeah, they were just out for our, looking out for our best interest in their free time. So, taking us to the dog track. And so, so then Mannheim started at least having some sort of standardization and, uh, I guess, a kind of like a GIA diamond recommendation where at least there was somewhat of a consistent way, uh, as consistent as CRs can be, on how you're going to grade a car. Then... We transitioned to, you know, the, met some really amazing used car managers and, you know, the Jermaine Automotive Group, you know, who I was working for back then, which I still work for today. They 
you know, were very strong with used cars and still remain strong today. And they trained us a lot on many different things. They brought in uh, Tommy Gibbs, they brought in Dale Pollock, and they trained us on looking at all kinds of things besides just appraisals, inventory management. And around that time, we realized that we had to be very disciplined with appraisals when Trade and Marketplace came out initially with Auto Trader. Mm-hmm. And we tried to show that to the customer up front, a lot of pullback, freaking out. What are you doing? What if we can hold back two or three grand on that trade? Why would you show the customer that number? And we're like, well, that's where all the gross is going to be, margin compression, you know, which we thought back then, 17% with margin compression, and and so on and so forth. So then we would, you know, we got we got appraisals down pretty much to where we had used car managers, certain designated people that could do an appraisal. Uh, when I left and went for a large public company, we were doing active trade appraisals, riding with the customer. The customer sold us on the cars. Hey, Brian, let's talk about that for just one second before we talk about that transition into the, the different company. So in your experience, and then, of course, looking back, now you mentioned something very good there that I, I want your opinion, of course. You said that when you moved to, I believe, the Germains, you went through training. They actually had some training. You had, of course, mentors, it sounds like. You know, people that they trusted, people they knew um, what they were doing, and then they actually worked with you in and around appraisals. Do you do you think that was common? I mean, or what did you normally see? Because I definitely have an opinion from my experience, which is that it wasn't common. You know, they just flip you the black book and say, go to town, kid, don't lose money. But what did you see? So at Germain, they wanted you more heavily involved. You had to drive the. No, there. You know what? I, I look back in retrospect. I guess I never really thought about it. They had a very clear, defined vision as to what they wanted it to look like. You had to drive the car, uh, ideally with the customer, but there, but it had to be driven 100% of the time. And there were certain non-negotiables, and if those things were missed, somebody was held accountable for it. And you had to check the tread depth, and you had to check things. You had to touch it, pop the hood, check for paintwork, and they taught you how to check for paintwork and all this old. Like an old, it's almost like an art form, like a samurai warrior. Now everybody just has guns with with scan tools and stuff. But I mean, you used to have to be able to know did the, you know, in the in the front fender well. You know, you didn't have all those. You didn't have all those tools, so it was very uh, based on experience. Based, you know, that's why there was such a variance between stores, on you know, you could appraise and you couldn't appraise. And the tribal knowledge that got passed on, you're only as good as your mentor, and. And we had some great ones at Jermaine. I mean, some some really really sharp guys for years and years and years. Um, yeah, and I, and I and I still you know a lot of that stuff stays with me today. So when I went to AutoNation, the the main difference with them is they wanted you to ride along with the customer. So I, there was a lot of value with that, but it took a little bit longer. It sapped your resources. So you're trying to figure out should I be setting appointments, doing one on ones. There's a lot of things that needed to be done simultaneously, and they and they run very lean. I came back to Jermaine back in 2016 with an assemblance of all that knowledge. When the inventory management, the great mentors, all these other things, and we quickly, uh, and they were already doing a decent job appraising cars here, you know, driving them around and doing road tests. And there wasn't a lot of errors being missed or, error, you know, errors that, you know, recon and stuff. That there, there was always a variant in every single store, but it wasn't, you know, catastrophic. Right. So then we started trying to figure out in 2017, we'd always done sight unseen appraisals. We've done virtual appraisals, but digital retailing was really starting to be the buzzword back then. Well, what, how do we appraise a car? You know, we always, and, and I was sold cars all over the country on eBay, different States, 
two states away. So we would get a manager on the phone, walk me through exactly what you're talking about. And then we'd have them send pictures. And it was almost like uh, they were guilty until proven innocent. If we were actually going to do something, uh, they had taken to an independent mechanic or technician to, to get you know, something for us tangible so that we wouldn't get screwed. We were basing the fact that we thought 90% of customers were liars and we treated our process like that. And many still do today, I think. So as we started transitioning to virtual software on our website, estimators, trade estimators, which everybody was reluctant to put on the website, we would put it on there. Customer would come in with the value. Now that's an opportunity to make some gross. That's an opportunity to drag off of it and tell them why they're wrong. And it was almost like a court hearing. You know, We put them on stand. We put the car up on a lift. You see this? You see this? You didn't put this on there. You lied about this. You didn't put this on there. So it sounds Trust like going down. even though you know, you're making the transition, which I hear that a lot. And, of course, I see that a lot where people – it's very easy to talk about what we should do. Very easy to say that the market's changed, that the consumer demands are different, and that we need to be more relevant, and we need to be more forward-thinking. And then we add a lot of these tools. But just like you said right there, stores struggle that they add these tools to try to add transparency. And, of course, most taglines are one of the easiest, most transparent you know, car purchases you ever make. Five grand over KBB. Right. And then the consumer comes in. And then we immediately plug them back into our old way of doing things, like you said. It's like, hey, look, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, rather than those up. Right. Okay. Yeah, collaboratively with them. Hey, do you see why this is? And do you see why this is? And and I'd be lying if I said that you know, we just came out of the womb. All of a sudden, it was like, whoa, as a light bulb went off, now we're doing this. Right? It was massively painful. And it was outlasting everybody and everybody pulling each other's hair out and and it started with really the sight unseen appraisal because I said, look, if we don't control this process and we don't clarify it, it's just like culture. You've always got a process. It's just a matter of what it, you know, who's controlling it. Either, you know, the 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 huddle is controlling it, or we're controlling it. But acting like it's not happening, putting your head in the sand is 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 a fantasy world. So we broke it down on a process map. You know, something I learned at Disney is process mapping. Here's what our, you know, how do we want the journey to look, right? So here's this step, this step. We want the customer to experience this, then this, then this, then this. Perfect world, right? Now let's compare our process to that process. Whoa, that's god-awful, right? So that now let's look at the pain points, the friction points, the gap. How do we attack that? Oh, there's no way to attack that. No differently than right now what we do with digital retail tools. Oh, yeah, we'll give you payments online. You can build your deal. You can do this. You can do that. And they come in. No, we're not doing any of that. So yeah. the and- transfer to your team doesn't always um, hand off very well. So when you're talking about implementing a lot of these changes, which of course is bringing us to current state, you know, what you're doing at your store. So you mentioned that you got together and you had a process map and you said, okay, here's the things that we want to do, right? We want them to be happy. We want to sell more cars. We want to, of course, make more money. But how do we keep CSI high? How do we, you know, what does that new experience look like? Which is what you're doing, right? You want to chunk it out so that way the team can digest it. Who all did you have involved in this conversation? Um, Initially, used car manager, used car director, uh, general sales manager, sat down with them. You know, here's what we're thinking. We've got to figure out something. Then you get the initial, and and I've got an amazing team, so the conversation may be different because we can detach and have those conversations because we can trust. And I think that's an important point to make is 
And it wasn't that way for the first two years here. But we now trust that if we pull one person off the desk, the person right behind him, like on a football team, will reload and run the same play just as consistently. We won't have to worry about something not getting executed. Which and is that's the, a critical. That's the benefit of a process, right? I mean, yes. that right there at the core is why we have processes or should have processes at our store. And that is that everybody understands what play needs to be ran and how to do it. So that way, if somebody can't pick up the ball, the other person can. And that's a very important thing to know. And that's why uh, for a long part of my career, I wasn't able to get as strategic because I was so busy sawing, I couldn't sharpen the blade because I didn't trust the people. And I tolerated too much, more than I should, longer than I should have. And that ripple effect prevented me from innovating and and coming up with all these new things. To answer your question, we had uh, the senior management that were involved in that decision in the room. And, and they're pretty receptive. They're never, you know, oh, I'm not doing that or I'm not changing. It's why are we doing this? Is it worth the ROI, the time? Is it what's, you know, the amount of time we're going to invest in it? What are we going to, is it worth what's it? The right? yeah. What's yeah. the benefit to me? And <clears throat> is the juice worth the squeeze? So we determined that it was, but then we said this is a massive undertaking. So we get, get some of the top salespeople. So we get a cross section of the sales staff, people that do a lot, do a lot of volume, but kind of, you know, have more autonomy. Uh, different schedule, but they've been in the business for a long time. Some new, uh, you know, greener talent that just work and they don't ask why they don't have never even thought those thoughts because they haven't been in the business long enough to know any other way. Mm -hmm. And we try to get a cross section of of a lot of them that are really smart and try to make them as diverse and different as possible. And internet floor, equity sales, every different cross section of the uh, new used and, and phone ups. And we ask them all, you know, what, what are your biggest friction points as an associate? What can we do to remove roadblocks? You know, and the trust initially is, uh, you know, I'm not going to roll the manager that's sitting right next to me because what he tells me is I don't care what that software says, get them in. And it, and if it's not worth what that thing says, we're not putting that kind of money in the car. I hope you, I want you to realize that. And that's, that's not today, but that's the way it was. You know, I don't care what that thing says. It's not going to bring that at the auction. I know I've been doing it this long. I don't care what that computer says. You know, that's why they still have people and not computers running dealerships. And obviously, you and I both know the answer is somewhere in between. But the consistency and the expectation of clarity for the associates, if it's not the same, even if it's 5% of the time, 10% of the time, even like Amazon, right, where there are going to be losses and there's an expected loss ratio, which I didn't even know what that meant until a couple of years ago. And you can't go into something thinking about, okay, I've got a guaranteed expected loss ratio of 10%. If I can get it to 8%, I'm winning. If it's 12%, I need to get checking in. But I'm not going to build my process around that 10%. Everybody, what if one of these people does the 10% thing and they don't do this or don't do that and they screw me? Okay, so what? Let me stop you there for just a second. I think you brought up two really good points. Um, One is, of course, it's all about change management, right? And how do you get change management? Of course, it's a team. It takes a team to win. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes our own successes cover up the greater opportunity. So I definitely applaud you for getting with all the members of the team and looking at it from a, hey, how can we remove the friction? You know, what are we not seeing at our position or our level that you're seeing? But at the end of the day, we all sell to the same customer. We all sell to the same market. We just have different jobs and different ways of doing it. And that, of course, creates the buy-in. And nobody likes having something shoved down their throat that they had no input in. And they say, well, I could have told you this wasn't going to work. How did they not see this and this and this? Well, obviously, because we didn't ask. I've done it. Right. Right. The other uh, thing I hear that sounds really apparent is that your team 
is very comfortable being uncomfortable. They feel like they have a voice that they can actually raise their hand without being, you know, hurt and say, hey, I have a concern or I think there's a better way. Let's talk about it. It doesn't mean you're going to do it, but if your team doesn't feel that they have a voice or they can affect change or at least be heard, they start to disassociate. And sometimes I do it even when I think it's not going to work, which sometimes I knowingly cost our company money just to show them that I will listen to them. A, I don't know how long I'm going to do it for, but I'm going to tell them, if not, this is the way we're going to do it. We can try this. And sometimes their way works better than the way I came up with when I try it like that. So mm. you, you never know until you do. But if you're not selling cars and, and, and you know, like to your point, you don't have all the processes in place to where you're profitable, to where you can afford to do those things because everything else is running tight because you got a cadence of accountability, you know, with the lag measures, the lead measures, scoreboard, and everybody's in the line towards a common vision. You can't go off of these little skunk works projects and try that stuff. Which is the other piece you just talked about, um, understanding there's going to be loss. To try something new, you, there sometimes very real is that you're going to backstep a little bit, but the idea is that it's going to create opportunities to allow you to leapfrog forward. But it's that fear of loss that I see at dealerships that really is the greatest thing. That's the greatest hurdle we have. It's and, and I get it. I mean, again, my background is selling cars, you know, I moved my way up through the ranks. And it was, you know, you're knee deep in the trenches, concentrating on today, 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 that it's hard to look at tomorrow. You know, it, it's hard to make an adjustment when you are making money and you're knee deep, you know, in the trenches to say, hmm. Let's think about this. Is there a better way? Can we make a change? It's painful. It can be very painful. And many of us, you know, in this industry, have egos. We don't like to raise our hand and ask for help at all levels, right? We're trained not to, right? Right. Yeah, it's a sign, it's of, sign weakness. of weakness. And I remember calling Bernie Marino up in Cleveland one time, and he's selling all these Mercedes, and I'm trying to figure out what he's doing. And I called him up, and I said, hey, how are you doing this? And he just told me. And I got off the phone, I'm like, and I remember at the end, I said, well, you know, I really appreciate this. You're, you're not in the same city, but you're in the same state. Why would you share that to me? Or share, or share all that with me. He goes, I, I mean, nobody's ever asked. So you're the only one that ever asked. I, you know, it's not like a secret. And because I figured most people probably won't do it anyway. So, you know, we'll see if you do. And it was, it was amazing that of all, everybody was trying to figure out what's he doing. Oh, he's exporting cars. He's got to be doing something shady. Kind of like how we look at Carvana, right? Yeah. Nobody just asked. Right. I talked to Brian Benstock here recently and asked him about service drip, pickup drop off and all these things that are terrifying me. And he said, Brian, there's two different ways to look at it. There's return on income, which is the way everybody looks at it. And there's return on learning. And there's a difference between the two. He goes, in the first year, we lost a lot of money on that project. He goes, but now we're making it up in exponential ways and geometric ways of the things we never even assumed with loyalty and all this other stuff that um, you got to be willing to your point to have some expected loss ratios. In my experience, in my career, I have learned 10 times more every time I failed than anything that success has taught me. Because success, by the nature of it being a success, covers up a lot of opportunities. There are things that you learn. So you're right. You have to, you have to try different things. You have to constantly be willing to disrupt your current way of doing business or somebody else will come into your market and disrupt you. And when that happens, which is what's happening now, which is what spurred 
us to really, so we were doing, we had a template and all these overcomplicated ways of doing these sight and scene appraisals, right? This old sheet that we had, ask these hundred questions and we made it so painful that we thought, that, okay, well, that'll just get them to come in. They'll say, I'm not filling all that out, right? And uh, I had a customer right at the beginning of COVID that was in my finance office. And the finance manager came up and I was at the sales tower and he said, hey, this customer's in there. He wants to pull the trade from the deal. Pull the trade from the deal. It's a 2013 Toyota FRS with $23,000. No, no, no. Let me go talk to him. I want to keep that car. So go in there and talk to him. And he said, hey, it's not a big deal. I'm still going to buy the Toyota from you. But uh, they're going to be here in a little bit to pick up the car. I'm like, what? Here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they made it so easy. Well, how much is it with the tax credit? Maybe I can get to the same. Uh, let me know if you need more. You know, If I need to put the deal together, just let me know where you need to be. And if I could, would you? And he said, no, it's not a big deal. It was just easier in my own showroom like, to, for his, the customer to have them acquire the car. So I had to break down every process step, and I, you know, that's that's one of my, you know, you can call it a flaw or a, or whatever, blessing curse, but I have to know how that happened. Every single step, what did they say? What did you do? How did this? Blah blah blah. And when I process mapped that in reverse, brought all the managers in, you know, they thought I was going to flip out, but I said we got to agree that that's never going to happen again, which everybody was already there. And said, now, yeah, and now. I, so then uh, Wendell Hardy, who's an amazing, one of the best used car guys I've ever seen, is by GSM. We got in the room, uh, pulled up our appraisal tool, and we're sitting there going back and forth. Okay, what what's this thing worth? What's this? How much could we possibly be off the variance of it? And it really wasn't that much. And I said, at the end of the day, it's about speed, and it's about doing what that customer just experienced with them. And us being able to provide it better than the you know online public retailer does that doesn't have a new car franchise we have an advantage over them. We just need to be able to deliver that experience because we're not doing it today. But today we do. But that journey from there to there, extremely painful. So walk me through. So now we're back to current state. So of course, you know, we've talked a lot about where we've been and kind of, you know, the lack of training, lack of clarity. And of course, again, going back in time, the consumer, right? Our consumer didn't have access to all the information that we did. So we held all the cards. So we could dictate what was going to happen, which really explains a lot of the uh, feelings that we've earned. Let's be real, that we've earned right. in the consumer's mind when it comes to buying a car. They don't like it, right? But moving now to current state where the consumer has access to just as much information, if not more, than we do at the dealership. Walk me through exactly what happens. I come into your dealership. Or I call in. And it's I the same. It's the same process either way, which okay. took a long time to get to that point. But if they walk in and they want a value for their trade, let's start there. Which, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm really playing it down how we got from where we were even in seventeen to that point. But when we Wendell and I started really breaking it down. With, Ryan Weeben and, and all, our whole Ben Fed and our whole management team, which, which are insanely sharp, we all sat there and talked about it. What's the worst thing would happen if we just let the customer drive this experience? And as I look at, I study Disney a lot and their digital transformation with magic bands and letting people just check in and go into the park and do a lot of self-service or what we see at grocery stores when 
when people check out, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe somebody can steal something. I remember the first time I saw that, I could just walk out with all this stuff. How would they know? And but that's not what most people do. Most people are honest and they do the right thing. If you treat them with respect, which well, we that's always the fear of loss. That's the fair loss, right? You would rather work under the assumption that people are going to do wrong and steal than the benefit and the speed and the ease for the consumer that would lead to drive them to purchase more, which is generally what we see, right? And if we treat them that way first, the law of reciprocity, they're going to, you know, and it's hard. It was a hard leap for me to make, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen and it could blow up. So we decided that we were going to just let go. Uh, this is around COVID, right? So the timing was perfect because we were doing remote deals and we were half staffed. We were every work every other alternate weeks because they couldn't be physically here in the event that there was an outbreak. We didn't want everybody to be, you know, can, you know, an outbreak or whatever. So we tried to figure out how can we empower these salespeople to appraise cars because we don't have the staff. We don't have so the your salespeople. Your salespeople appraise the cars. They do now, but at that point we were throwing stuff out and, and even my managers who are crazy innovative, they like, hold on a second. Wait, what did you do? Just like what you just said. Right. So, and I said, well, I'd like to get to the point where the customer praises the car and they're like, Oh my God, why is he doing this again? Right. And, and half the ideas that I come up with like that are, they don't work and half of them do. So, but you'll, you never know until you try it. Right. And you try it with a belief that we're going to burn the ships in the harbor and that's the only way. And mm-hmm. we can always go back, but we're going to at least see it through for 30 days. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound like you're a uh, stick your toe in the water and see if it's cold. You're like, Hey, look, if I'm going to jump in this water, I'm jumping in. Cannonball. Cannonball. <laughs> it's one, we're either doing one or the other. So yeah, we're either not doing it or we're doing it. So when we did it, we had to sit down. We, we ran it out too fast because the salespeople got overexcited. A lot of, you know, adrenaline flowing. Wow. I'm, we're all, you know, used car managers now. And we can do this, do this, and do this. So I, I, I tried to microwave it. It needed to be more slow cooked. So we had to pull it all the way back in because I'm like, whoa, I started hitting the panic button. And then do a lot more training because I rolled it out real quick. Okay, here's what it is. We're going to do this. Boom, boom, boom. Got it. You know, like nodding their head. Good. Okay. Just don't mess it up because if not, I'm going to take it away. No, no. But nobody wants to raise their hand and ask for help because they all want to, you know, nobody wants to be the one that doesn't know. What they're, they're now being Right. So they, they love the autonomy. Some of them took it too far, but I will say now that they don't, nobody wants to give it up. Once you have that ability to have that speed, that velocity, and we severely underestimated our people. We, we hire good people. We recruit good people. We train them. Uh, we put them through a rigorous you know, uh, personality assessment and interview process, try to talk them out of working here. And when you do that, you know, kind of like the military, they, you, you have good people, and then you've got to trust them. You got buy-in. They have an and idea power. that they're actually joining, right? The yes. cult of the car guy. Right. So, <laughs> speaking of that, so, you, so you're mentioning now that, of course, they're appraising. What tools do you give them? So, of course, you're going to train, right? Training is one thing. Um, but what tools do you give them and which to use? So we have an iPad with our digital retail tool, uh, you know, which is a online iPad in showroom omni-channel uh, iPad tool, and they put the uh, information in there. From there, there's an API that pushes into the auto, but I don't need them to be in the auto because the auto is more of a coach's dashboard. I just need a player's dashboard, and I just need them to get the basics and and have them with the customer experiencing, taking some pictures, and what we've always okay, so they're doing this hand in hand with the consumer. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's the only way. 
it, it, and it's the huge benefit because there's some downsides with it too. You know, you can't when you're when the customer sees it that transparently. The old the things that I was you know embedded in my DNA over allowing under allowing you can't do it. Don't tell because, the consumer anything. Right. right, liars are liars. Just keep them in the dark like mushrooms. And when they see it, and they're like, "Wow, you're really pulling the curtain back." And we're about to put uh, Apple TVs that are going to mirror this as we're doing it. But what are you going to do? There's no three card Monty when you're when they're doing it with you. And what we find, or I've found, is that they, the customer will say, "You know what? You know they feel bad for the salesperson. There actually is a little thing over here. I think that you missed because they don't want them to get in trouble." Because it's different with the salesperson than it is with the manager. Manager, it's almost like me versus you. I'm, you know, a pitch battle, a winner and a loser. But with a salesperson, if we do the needs analysis correctly and they really care and they're genuine, authentic, sincere, the customer doesn't want to take advantage of them. Once they get to know them, you know, because the majority of people are not bad people. And if you have an expected loss ratio of five, ten percent of people that maybe do take advantage of you, okay, the, the dollar amount of that like under allowance over allowance i was so focused on under allowance i wanted to be at 750 to a thousand dollars the reality of it is this when you take a look at the aggregate of the total you know 500 plus cars a month that we sell there's whatever it was 15 percent under allowance and there's some over allowance and when you add it all together it was about thirty thousand dollars a month now take the thirty thousand dollars divide it by that you're maybe 175 200 a car now for the speed, the agony, the trade wins that you don't, the look the book going down, that is absolutely not worth it. If you miss five trades, you know, on certain cars of ours, you've mm-hmm. already shot yourself in the foot. Not to mention all the ancillary money that flows around. Which especially so, right now in today's market, you can't afford that. You, you just simply cannot afford to, to miss, miss one. Yeah, because in a lot of cases, I'm guessing that car coming in is more valuable than the car you're selling. And really, well, we do- customer. Correct. Yeah. And doing the right thing. And, and the salespeople feel so much better about it. They're so empowered. And if somebody recruits them, which our people get recruited all the time, well, do you, will you let me appraise my own cars? Hell no, I'm not going to let you appraise your own cars. Oh, why not? Oh, you don't, well, you know, and they're thinking, you don't trust me. You don't know how to do it rather than saying, Hey, here's a great opportunity to train you to do it. And guess what? Doesn't that lead to future managers? Aren't you actually filling your pipeline to scale your business? And not just that, their managers who were out there appraising all these cars all day long are now leaders, not managers. So now they're doing coaching, one-on-ones, developing them, career path training. Where do you want to be? Goal setting, the cool stuff, the fun stuff, not just out there. You know, down, it was 97 degrees down here, like 80 to 8% humidity yesterday. That's a tough gig. That's impressive. So they, they, uh, I mean, they, they earn what they make. But, th- but that is not easy at all. And that heat, humidity, it's brutal. Now, let me ask you a question. So when you look at the old way, right, and this is really, we're only talking a handful of years ago, right? But our market is drastically changing. You know, if, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that, hey, things can change on a dime. And it wasn't like it wasn't evolving anyways. But if you look at when you got there and your success rate in taking cars in, because remember, the car is a star. At the end of the day, everything we do at the dealership is about selling cars and you have to have cars to do that. So again, it goes back to the appraisal. If you look at your success rate or what we would always call look to book, you know, how many times are you looking at cars versus actually booking the deal? How much of a jump have you seen? What kind of percentage are you, you know, that much more accurate in actually taking cars in? Okay. So I'm glad you asked this question because nobody ever asks it really in that way. 
So it actually has gone down. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So we would try to figure out who the buyers were. And we would try to figure out if the terms and conditions are agreeable. Is this something you think we could wrap up? Now, if we didn't have a favorable answer to that, maybe it doesn't go that much further in 2016 down the road to the sale. And we're not going to put them on paper unless they're ready to buy. So as we're pre-qualifying them, sizing them up, asking them buying questions, all the ways that I was taught, um, those might not see an appraisal or a menu. So in in reality, that we were our look the book, we were pounding our chest. We're at sixty percent. We're the best. We're great. Uh, but we were still buying cars at auction. We were buying cars from wholesale. We were doing all these things, but we were we were selling, you know, candidly, you know, a little over a hundred cars a month used back then. Today, you know, we'll we'll sell we sell close to you know two hundred cars or a little bit over, you know, each month. But we don't buy a single car at the auction. Haven't bought a car at the auction since Wendell Hardy became our GSM in two thousand. I think it was March of eighteen. And he, and he he said, he goes, I just don't believe in buying cars at the auction. We have a franchise with a service drive with you know 3,500 cars coming through that a month. Why do we have to do that? And to this day, you know, we're, we're buying 100 to 150 cars off the service drive per month. We've got a team of 12 that's dedicated to just that. And you know, of those, actually buy a little bit more than that. There may be 20, 25 more than that that are just straight street purchases. But all the other... You know, the, the 125 to 150, they all say, you know, this month it's probably going to be 100 because of the inventory shortage. But it's still, it's a core group part of our business. Think about the time and energy. not have to look at simulcast all day long. And the retention that went up 20 points. And the, it's obviously, as you know, a lot more profitable to just retain. You don't have the auction fees. You don't have transport. You don't have the CR variances. Is this, this, second key? Okay, I mean, we're looking at it. It's right here. And the salespeople are taking 11 pictures and they do, and they're doing a great job taking pictures. It was far better than I ever thought, far better than some of the used car managers that worked here. And I've worked, and definitely a lot that I've worked with over the years because they're so passionate and it's their deal. And they're actually really well, honest. Let's think about this for a second. Let's think about the psychology of this. They're not getting paid off the entire store, they're getting paid off that deal. So, who is the most incentivized to put a deal together? And if you have accountability, they're looking at the car and trying to truly say, okay, this is evaluation on that. Now, let's go back for a second because I think there's something – actually, I know there's something there that this is what I want. This is what I wanted from this conversation. So let's get into the real things, the good, the bad, the ugly. And you know, if your child's not the prettiest, let's be honest, and let's find a hat, right, that pretties the child up. So when you talked about your percentage, so now a natural assumption would be, hey, if we're successful 40% of the time in the old way of doing it, and then we make all these changes to add clarity, to involve the consumer, to educate our salesperson, um, logically, you know, our, our minds would say, okay, great. Now are we at 50, 60, 70%? But when I asked you that question, you said, funny, nobody asked that, but we've actually went down. Now, I'm going to make an assumption, and I want to hear if this is correct, but this is something I talk about with dealers all the time, is that it's just data. You know, if, if you tell me that you want to be at 80% look to book, I'll get you to 80%. The question is, how pure is that data? Are we logging everything correctly? Uh, because I always look at success rates, whether it's a turn on your inventory or your look to book, as how many at-bats are we doing? If your percentages skyrocket, then that's okay, right? 
But what is that a symptom? That's a symptom of not pushing enough appraisals through the system because I need to miss, you know, more often in order to supply the, the pipeline. So I think the data can be very misleading, but since you said you have 12 people dedicated to just work with the service name and your appraisers are actually your salespeople too, it sounds to me like the numbers may have gone down because of the additional quantity of appraisals you're getting, which of course will have a negative effect on your book rate, how many you're actually getting, which again, creates an opportunity. Is that and you're hundred percent, you're hundred percent correct. And you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take. It's amazing how many customers when we just show them, you know, and just, and, and, and we're okay. Starting with me, we're okay if they don't do it. Right. Because I also don't want to try to force and pound a, you know, which I used to do a, a square peg in a round hole. I'm okay. If they, if the customer says, you know what, I don't want to sell my car today. Okay. Why force them? I don't need to. Cause if it I have somebody else, appraisal, does it, does it change no. the appraisal today? Right. It's, Which is different. Than <laughs> the, well, and this is, unfortunately, this is still current state of a lot of dealerships. And this is where I would challenge the listeners to say, ooh, yeah, we still do that. Because most of us, if you have some time, you know, what I say, time in country, you're going to have to be honest and say, yeah, we've done that before. And that's, hey, Brian, you know, I just got an appraisal on your car today. Buy my car, right? And then you say, no, or I'll get back to you. You go, well, you know, the market's changed. That car very well may not be. And you go into the whole old school way of interacting with your consumer, which doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't translate. Let me, as, as, as empowered and enabled and all this cool stuff that we're talking about, that happened to me yesterday. So we get involved with an upset customer. She needed $10,000 worth of work. It was a TMU Sienna transmission, rack and pinion out, uh, steering column. Jim. Jim. Right. But it's a 2011 with a hundred, well, who knows it's kilometers, but it's a uh, hundred, right. Yeah. 30 something thousand. So they look at this 10 grand RO, which is not just the, you know, red it's yellow and some green stuff you need to think about in the future on the MPI. And she sees the 10 grand. Well, how much is it worth? I don't know. I mean, probably not much, you know, based with that much work needed, it's, it's probably not worth anything. Right. So a cognitive bias. I'm just, they're, they're, you know, so it was an all day affair yesterday with this, everybody, every person touch point involved in that deal with me. And as I mean, for hours, four or five, but as we went back and we reverse engineered that flaw, everybody understood the deal, but it's because we deviated from the process. The car actually, fair enough. It's not worth a lot, but it's worth $2,500 because I would have just wholesaled that car because it's probably not an ideal retail piece on this lot. But then that would have made the customer look differently. Maybe I should repair a couple of these things. Maybe I should, you know, and, I, and the car that I could have put her in is actually a rental car that I had to sign up to somebody else. But I didn't get an opportunity, which I'm going to sell her, but I didn't get an opportunity to do it all that day because she wasn't in the system. She wasn't on my desk log. She wasn't on uh, in my appraisal log. So I it wasn't part of my save a deal meeting. I couldn't retarget her with my retargeting campaigns from my CRM. Because if she's not logged into Vin Solutions, I'm not going to be able to push her out to everywhere and then have the cookies on everywhere else she looks at. I need your car and all the other pieces that go along with it, all because somebody came up with an assumption based on one past experience that that's all it was worth. Right. And and we're all guilty of it every single day. And if it happens two times, three times, or five that's times. That's the reality of a process. I mean, we can institute the very best process, but it takes constant vigilance. 
constant management and then re-educating and re-evaluating with the team of why we're doing this. Because there are, you know, it, it's change management, which is really essentially at the core of what we're talking about. And change management doesn't just stop. There isn't a magic point at which you go, I've changed it and <laughs> don't have to manage anymore. I mean, that's why our titles don't change. We're managers and we're managers every day. And we have to manage through that. What you just said is exactly what happened. And I talked to the guy who's a really bright guy and he's got a lot of runway, uh, the salesperson that did it. And he's kind of the second, he's on the depth chart, uh, you know, as one of the two people behind my sales manager, because it's all clear as the what the leadership pipeline is in every position, the depth chart, like a football team. Right. But when I was talking, I'm like, why would you think that I need to understand why you came up to that conclusion? And luckily there's a high level of trust. And he said, well, I was thinking this and this and the, and the, the reader's digest version is we told him what to do. We didn't tell him why we were doing it. And that's the key. Right. And he goes, okay, I didn't get that. So, yeah. So when you were mentioning like talking with the appraiser, so the the salesperson going out there with the consumer and educating them, do you find that that makes the transaction easier? Because the consumer is like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Because isn't that what? Those big people out there, right? We talk about those big dealers that don't necessarily have new car franchise. It's very transparent. It's very simple. And they just go, hey, I'm praising it for what I'm willing to pay. Right. My best they, afford. they don't match prices. They don't do it's That's what I'm willing to offer. And that we're putting our best foot forward the first time, which we've never done in the because car. Because it fits their business model. Right. And that's, yeah, and that's what it wants. And they also lay off of the cars that they don't want. And they hit them very low. And they're okay missing that deal because they're only focused on and, – and I'll give you another example. So we've got this other product uh, that, that allows me to do some reporting in, in, uh, out of my CDK system. And I look at historical sold data similar to what the one is in, in Viato, but it lets me tweak it and go by trim and a few other things. So specifically at this store, we won two yesterday. And now we're looking specifically like that. And I've learned that from Carvana. And I think that anybody who's blasphemizing them or vilifying them – Versus stealing their best practices, we don't have to do everything they do. There's not, you know, there's some things that they don't. They're not perfect either, and we're no, neither are we. But they've got some really gems that have made me and our team a lot of money this year by taking those best practices that are just on their website, right? And if you take the just being transparent with their trade and just let the customer, and if it's documentation is the new negotiation, right? If it doesn't match up with the recon they said, then that's the conversation, and then you're only, you know. Do- talking about the documentation, you're not negotiating. You know, well, how much is you know, your, the recon? How much is the tire? I can do tires for this. Okay, I'd rather have that conversation of forty dollars per tire than I think it's worth two grand more. Why? Because I said so. And you do you lose that stuff because now it's logic based, and you're going through justifying as to what it is, and the salespeople like it better, the customers like it better, and they're like, okay, That's you know, I, that is yeah. our consumer. The consumer is moving away from the old school let's go in and beat each other up and i'm gonna hit you low and you hit me high and then we'll just work it out in the middle and we'll both walk away unhappy right right now it's it's much more of a hey i'm very concerned with condition of the car which is the number one concern not price right so i want to i want to know that you know if you're going to be fair just explain to me what you're doing and then also do the same thing with the vehicle i'm interested in purchasing and, and, and then right. honor that, that it when I it show easier. up. And, and of course, honor it. Don't, do not say that you are a transparent and easy buying experience and then plug them back into the old way of doing things. 
Recipe for disaster. Recipe for disaster. So as we conclude, so now we went a lot of different areas, and that's fine because that's what I wanted because I wanted reality. You know, a lot of things we do aren't great. A lot of things we do are really great. But I think across the market, we all agree we can do better. And there's a lot of opportunity. And that's all I care about. Because if I came to work and I saw no opportunity, I'm going to change professions. Right. So one of the things um, that I wanted to wrap up with is like those key three to five things, the highest impact, the easiest to put in place that you believe would really make a difference for the dealer to improve their operations to acquire more vehicles. So the number one thing, first off, before the other two that are that are very impactful, is you have to have a sight unseen or virtual appraisal process. If you want to be true omnichannel, and and this is going to go back to this. We all went to it in April and May of 2020. I was just going through the sales field uh, yesterday. What were you doing last year? Why has the productivity gone down? You had every other week off, yet you set the same number of appointments at half the time. How is that? Oh, because I called up every customer, and and it took, and I didn't actually come up with this. They they said, what was I doing last year? Oh, it was the height of COVID. I was offering to take every car to every customer and just deliver it to their door so they could for on-site demonstrations. Okay, so that's how you set that many appointments. So the appetite for that was that high. Yeah, but that was during COVID. So you think that when everybody they're worried about getting sick. It's higher than it is now when they're guard, when when they're not scared about being sick, and they're okay more so with you coming to their house. Right. But I guess that's a good point. And now you have an iPad, so now you can not just you know show them a car; you can appraise their car while you're there, and we can send you a menu digitally so that you can you know talk about that. So now you have all these other tools that you didn't have back then that you do have now, and the appointments are are static; they're the same. Doesn't make sense, and because it's a mindset. And we've all been like a frog in a pot of boiling water. So in order to do that remotely, virtually, in showroom, we got to let go. And you and I have been in the business for decades. And if anybody should be pushing back, it should be us because we're now the old guys in the room, right? right. And, we're but, the ones that come from. But everybody needs to just wrap around. The, it's not the way we've always done it. We need to trust our people. You're bringing in all these younger people. They don't like that the way we were brought up. They want to be trusted. They want to understand what's going on. You're they don't the want to be our consumer, right? The new salesperson, the new people coming into our industry. Let's be real. They're not willing to work 60, 80 hours a week to learn their craft by not doing right by our customers and just bleed the customer, the owner's money before they actually figure out how to appraise and how to do things. They expect the, the information. Now they want it clear. They want it concise. They want it transparent. Sounds just like our consumer, too. And when you do sudden scene appraisals and you have a systemized process, if you have a cash offer tool, which they don't want a, an estimate. You know, we have we allow them to have the choice of an estimate. They want a re real cash offer and and the ability to know to not waste their time, because that's the number one thing I see on these surveys or that I uh, send an email to every showroom up. Yeah, I you know, or if any missed appointment, they all say I just didn't. I didn't want to come in there and waste two or three hours and not walk away with what I was trying to accomplish. That, it's never about price or these guys can, it used to be, but it's not anymore. The other thing is the word tracks that we were trained with, right? Well, you know, that's a great question. I appreciate that. By the way, are you looking for a two door or a four door? Now, instead of doing that, it, well, what's my trade worth? You want to know what your trade's worth? Boom. What's your cell phone number? Now I'm getting PII. It's in it's text. 
uh, it's in your cell phone or here, what's your email address? I'll email it to you too. Whichever way you want to do it, desktop, mobile, app, you want to, I mean, however, your house, here, wherever. Yeah, I don't care how you digest. I just need to know the best way to deliver it to you. And then you'll need a word track. The way you want to eat. There's no word track. Hey, the link's in there. And now you're also self-checking out like a target. Okay, now you're going to also bag your groceries. You're going to scan them. I don't have to have as much headcount. I can accomplish more because you're doing that. Or later on, you're uploading your driver's license. I don't. I can accomplish more tangible results because there's so many ancillary benefits of this sight and scene appraisal process that people wrap their mind around it. That's by far the first thing. It's the number one barrier, first, I think. First one, sight and scene appraisal. Have a process in place. Even if it is not the best, leverage the people you know, right? There's a lot of industry professionals out there. And even the ones who don't necessarily do it right, you may learn something from what not to do, but and then measure back. So I like that as a first one. So we're saying have a sight unseen appraisal process in place, manage your people to it. And, and empower and them. It, empower yes. them to do it. Okay, number two. Number two is the equity service drive process. So a way- Let's dumb that down. Let's dumb that down. That sounds really good, Brian, but. Pretend I'm a 10-year-old. Okay. If you tell me you have an equity, mining, whatever, you lost me. Let's let's what are we really saying? We want to buy cars off the service drive and, there and you equity go. Mi- equity yes. mining is a foul. Guess what? Our customer who is already coming to us, driving cars that we probably sold them, and we need cars. So we're gonna go after them. So to your point on simplifying things. We tried slick word tracks. What if I get you out of your car into another car? Can you pay the same? Would you consider doing that? And they all go, you know, like it's like I'm being sold. Right. Now we just walk up to them with an iPad. Hey, would you like to know what your car is worth? We're paying more than, than the market value right now. If you'd like to know what it is. That's a great point. That's a great point. What is wrong with going out there? And it's on the news every day. So we're not telling you something they don't, they don't already know. And saying, hey, Brian, thank you so much for coming here to do service. I don't know if you noticed. That big parking lot out there, it's not its not really a parking lot. That's like my inventory, and those are the spaces I don't have cars to fill. I would really be interested in giving you a good value on your car because I need cars. Would you be interested? And if they say yes, great. If not, swipe. I don't know what it is, left or right or whatever, but whatever, whatever on those dating apps, you swipe the other way and move on. There's no sense molesting that customer in the service drive if they don't want to do it and because there's so many other ones that do. And you don't want service upset at you for harassing their customers when guess what? They're going to be asking for money. And and if you do do that for everybody to learn from my mistakes, if the service advisor sold the work, make sure that that internal RO goes back to that advisor before they close it. Uh, that's the, if you don't do that, that they don't like that at right. all. That's, <laughs> and that's the important thing to know. Yeah, because then they'll push back and they'll torpedo that program. If you if they know they're getting the work, there it, it's a, a symbiosis, and it's. I, I would have to assume um, from talking to you that your service managers, your service writers, everybody is pretty aware of your inventory situation and why you have people in the lane and what they're trying to accomplish by talking to the consumer. They, right? Cindy Lentz, our service director, is amazing. Has embraced this with open arms. She asked a lot of questions up front. You know, she she's all she she needs clarity. Once she has clarity, she's an advocate she, for the consumer. Yes, and then she's like, okay, now everybody stay out of my way. I can coach. I can manage this. But we've got them out there really helping customers in the morning. They're on the drive with the valets with an iPad, but they're also putting plastic on seats. 
They're asking customers if they need help. They're helping guide them through. So it's not like they're just standing there. Hey, you want to buy, you know, I want to sell your car. And they're actually, you know, we coach them daily not to sell because that's the hardest thing not to do is for a salesperson to not sell. Typically what we find is, and right now is the perfect time. First of all, half the customers buy something other than what they're driving. Yesterday we had two Corollas that bought Camry, RAV4. RAV4 customer, but LE went to an XLE. Had a RAV4 XLE that went to a Highlander LE. And you never know, what their lives change. And people go from this, this truck to that truck and had a customer from, from a Camry went to a Sienna two days ago because they're, they're, they're just, their life's changing. They get kids and different things and volleyball. And so assuming that, oh, because I heard this yesterday, you know, we, we don't have a, any Avalons. We don't have any Tacomas. Why am I going to go prospect Tacomas to get them to sell us their car? Which is a deadly, deadly thing. And it's so easy to come up with that mindset. It doesn't take much. Look at what their payment is. Stop looking at their payment. Stop looking at their current situation. You just ask them, if, hey, if I was to pay you above market value, would you sell me your car? That's it. Drop the money, right? Okay, so having a strong um, engagement with your service drive. The only question I would have on that is, obviously, you, you said you have people who are actively working the service drive. Is there any sort of mechanism or compensation built in for the service writer or the person who engages with the consumer to mention something or prompt the lead or you just have them stay away from it not at all the salespeople are not to talk about the ro that's not you know their lane so everybody's uh, staying yep. look and actually that, that makes a lot of sense considering we're talking about service okay so <laughs> like that what about the third so those two are big big rocks big pieces, right? big pieces and yes it took us three or four years and on our service drive process, we took it from way complex and trying to figure out payments. And what if we could have this algorithm to calculate this? The biggest thing you do is blow all that up. Hopefully, most people don't go through that. I imagine you probably will anyway, because it seems like most of my friends do. And they have to go through that journey before they come to this simplification at the end of the, of the rainbow. But once you get to that point, the, get that pot of gold, which is immense, then you can start with that equity team. And that's where we started. And we're still, we're not 100%, probably 30%. That's where you start with one or two champions on the appraisal process, salespeople appraising cars. So you you test it and beta test it out there to work out the bugs, and the kinks in your process. You don't just give, like in my case, we've got you know, almost 50 salespeople. You don't just say, okay, you're all appraising cars right now. Do it, go. Because I actually did do that and it ended up horrible for me. So, but you tried, which goes back to what you were saying before. It's okay. It's okay not to win every time. Right. It's okay yeah. to strike out. What's not acceptable is to not go to bat. Right? You're part of the team. We all have the job to do. Let's shake things up a little bit. Let's 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 disrupt ourselves. And what's the worst that could happen? Right. And usually, I'm assuming you end up selling a few more cars, taking a few more cars in trade, or you realize there's a better way to sell a few more cars and take a few more cars in trade. But at the end of the day, Something's going to happen, and it's going to produce that information for the team to come back and build that team of And relentlessly hey, asking the team what worked and what didn't. Right, right. Well, that's great. This is all incredible information. Um, obviously, I think there's a lot more meat here, you know. But I appreciate the time you took today to meet and uh, go over this because I, I really think a lot of things you're doing make a lot of sense. And I see, you know, to a greater or lesser degree across the market, dealers going into this. But one of the biggest hesitations is always that I don't know, that 
I'm not comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Which they have to get past. So I think having conversations like this, which are real, talking about the good, the bad, the indifferent, what I've seen, where the opportunity is, I think that'll really go far with our dealers as they're making the transition to implementing the new ways and moving into that future state, which is constantly evolving. You know, we have theories, we have different ideas, and we see definitely things trending a certain way, but we have to be open to change. And we're car guys. At the end of the day, most of us are brought up that every 30 days we get to start brand new. So we're used to change. 30-day sprints. Right. But, again, at the core, it's okay being uncomfortable. we got to shake things up. we got to think outside the box. Don't look at the other people who we think are doing better as an enemy or an obstacle. Look at them as an opportunity because they've shown you there is a different way. And then it's up to you to either mimic, imitate, or disrupt them. But at the end of the day, you're going to learn, right? And we have to be constant students of our craft. Thank you again, Brian, so much for taking the time today. This has been very beneficial for me. Hopefully some other people find it beneficial, but I'm pretty sure they will. Um, Anything you'd like to say to the market out there before we head off? No, I would say even as I'm, I've learned a lot, actually, even just going through, trying to articulate some of this stuff. I'm realizing that we've come a long way, but I'm realizing how far we still have to go. The more that I'm, I'm talking about this out loud. So I'm looking forward actually to going out there and, Rallying the team and oh, you fired up, right? Yeah, it is. It's all some additional opportunities. And that's the benefit of talking to other people in our industry. It doesn't matter if they have lesser experience or more experience. A different perspective alone makes you think. Right. And that and this and this got me thinking, which is awesome. So thank you. That's the most important thing we can do. Thank you again very much. I'm sure I'll have you back on because I know I plan on bugging you down the road. Uh, so you're my new phone a friend. I'll talk to you later. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it.